Welcome to Go Live, a podcast about the intersection of healthcare and technology, where fellows in clinical informatics bring you new, exciting, and thought-provoking discussions about hot topics in informatics today. I'm Jen Lee, second-year clinical informatics fellow at The Ohio State University. Joining me are two other second-year fellows, Keith Morse from Stanford and Eric Puster from Regent Street. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Glad to be here, Jen. Congrats on being second years. Thank you. Same to you. My gut reaction was to correct you when you introduced yourself as a second year because <laughs> it didn't sound right. <laughs> oh, you mean you didn't get some sort of special ASIF president communication that I had failed the first year or something? <laughs> no, just like the idea, like, because that happened, what, a week ago? Uh, I know. Isn't so, that crazy? Yeah. Do you have first year fellows in? We've got two new fellows. Yeah, so do we. They're great. Well, they've got great people to learn from. Maybe we can oh, get them thanks, on the podcast sometime. We'll get them on the podcast. <laughs> Well, they're going to inherit this podcast from us, you know. That's true. Well, guys, today we're going to be talking about technology and communication. Eric, I believe you had the opportunity to interview Emily Weber earlier this week. She's the CMIO of Riley Children's and Associate CMIO of Indiana University. Yes, I did. So she is such an intelligent, put-together person, and she recently participated in the writing of an important policy paper on electronic communications with patients, between patients and their providers. And I felt like she had so much to say. We ran out of time to discuss everything that we wanted to talk about, but we were able to cover most of the high points. Do you get to work with her some in your fellowship? I do actually get to follow her around, and she is just as nice in person as she sounds like on the radio. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Well, let's just go to the interview. All right, Emily. Uh, Getting into the subject matter of our podcast We wanted to discuss this policy paper that you've written because it's something that physicians are grappling with across the country because we're entering into this whole new world of communication with our patients. Some of us have only practiced in the setting of electronic communication with patients, but the way doctors and patients are communicating with each other is changing rapidly. Can you explain the changes that we're seeing? Yeah, thanks for the chance to come and speak about it. I agree completely that we are in a new age of expectations that our patients have about how they communicate with us. So um, I think what you're seeing and feeling is very much that we have policies and laws and expectations from the medical profession that don't match what technology delivers to our patients. Um, We know that um, in a really wide context, the quality of the care that our patients receive is not just in the moment that I'm talking to them as the doctor, but in the accessibility of that care and the cost of receiving it. So electronic communication plays a huge part in that because the timeliness of when a patient expects to get a test result back or to be able to access and communicate with their care team is different than five and 10 years ago. I I think our patients are expecting and desiring to communicate and integrate their medical teams into their lives the way they do um, with the mobile solutions and electronic communication around their finances or their grocery delivery or how they pay their bills or how they talk to their family. And I think it's an exciting time. Um, I would balance that by saying, Um, If any of you are interested in an area of research where there's not a lot defined, the efficacy of how we do that communication safely and effectively and in a cost-sensitive way, that's really not been well delineated yet, and that's what makes this so exciting. Um, That's also why we need to make sure our policies and our practice catch up with, with what we do know. Yeah, you've mentioned policies a a few times at at this point. So what exactly are the policies that you're thinking about when when we're discussing policies that are inadequate for our situation? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you mentioned the American Academy of Pediatrics policy, which we just published this month um, here in July. We're very, very excited about it because in the past, um, professional societies like the AAP or the AMA or whichever clinical professional society you're talking about haven't had guidance for the practitioner on what's best that's evidence-based to be effective. So that's one set of policy. Um, when those professional societies do that, that is the thing that gives a physician the power to, to figure out how they're gonna run their practice and communicate with their patients. That's how we say, look, this is what's recommended. And that's one group of, of policy, I would say. The other way to think about policy is things like federal policy. And if you think about the way that, um, that we are paid for the care that we provide here in the US at least, how the government looks at this type of communication is important as well. And their, how they write their guidance about what a patient's rights are, what the physician's rights and responsibilities are, mm -hmm. that's equally important as well. I think as physicians and as informaticians, we, we really want to make sure we raise our voice where we have the most influence. And that is in saying, look, this has been proven to improve access, improve timeliness, and improve the quality of care of what we do. The policies around adolescence, and, and I'm a pediatrician, as, we, as was previously said, so I always have that lens to that, is a great example of that. We know that adolescents communicate, get their information. They, they live in a, in a way very different than, than two and three decades ago, patients, what patients were doing. So if we get, as physicians and informaticians, if we can advocate for both our professional and things like federal policy to catch up with where we know is going to be uh, the effective movement for our patients. That's what I think is a huge part of what we can do. Bring that expertise and that frontline experience to help inform the laws and the reimbursements that really help. Honestly, they really do drive the way we practice. So we, we need to make sure we leverage that because we have the expertise and we want, we want to make sure that that's reflected. Absolutely. You mentioned that uh, for teenage patients, especially, they're in a whole different world of communication. Uh, what differences do you see between the way that adult doctors might communicate with their adult patients and pediatric doctors might communicate with their patients? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We actually, we had this come up yesterday um, during our our physician advisory forum. We have a range of doctors that provide all kinds of care, surgeons, medical doctors, pediatrics, adults, and adult providers have always had this kind of one-to-one, -one, right? It's you and your patient, and that's how you make decisions, and that's how you communicate. And so I think the way that a physician that is predominantly doing adult care thinks is very much in that zone. However, I would also I would stipulate that although pediatricians tend to be the ones to raise their hands and say, what about the proxies? What about the guardians? What about <laughs> grandma and mom and, and, and um, you know, Aunt Judy who's watching the kiddo for the weekend? We're the ones that tend to say that, but those are problems that are present and those are challenges that are present in the adult side too, right? So it doesn't even need to be a geriatric or elderly patient. Think about, I, I proxy into my husband's account. We need to solve the problems and the challenges around proxy communication and shared communication for those po that population as well as the pediatric and adolescent population. You mentioned adolescence, which is another passion I have, and part of the AAP's goal is to, to acknowledge that special consideration. There is an AAP policy about um, confidential 
um, adolescent needs specifically. I, I don't know if policies are popular, but it's a popular <laughs> policy because it calls that out. Because during the time that you move from that, you know, if you're an infant and your mom and dad are your primary communicators with your doctor, by the time you're 12, 11, 12, and 13, and I'm giving you a range because across the country it's extremely variable, you are starting to, as an adolescent, develop the autonomy to start to make some decisions. In the past, we've only talked about this in the literature in places like giving consent and assent for treatment. But now that we have electronic communication, we have this whole new area where we have to study and, and um, examine when and how do we help adolescents grow that responsibility and that understanding. They are different. There's that in-between space. And a lot of what's in the AP policy is about putting the the power of that decision in the in the hands of the patient and their doctor. All 12-year-olds are not exactly the same in how they manage their mobile phone, let alone the, the clinical information you might want to send them via that phone. And so the policy is really strong on trying to give that power to the clinician to say, look, the clinical data we have about when you mature and, and form that kind of executive frontal function, some may argue there are lots of adults that might not be fully there. It's not like a blood pressure where you can say, oh, look, now you're mature enough to understand how to message with my, with my office and manage your insulin. There's no, there's no objective test. So the policy is really focused on saying the delineation of that decision has to be with the clinical team. I hope that's really what rings through for people because it's a bit of a theme of like, no offense to any of our advocates, but we don't really want someone who's not clinical making those decisions for us. Absolutely. I also wanted to bring up again, specifically in your practice, what do you look at to decide on what level are, are your patients ready to receive communication? There is no objective test, as you mentioned, but all objective tests start with someone who has an idea about more relevant to a situation than another. So what observations do you have about that? It's a great question. As I launch into kind of my own personal observations, I will say just clinically as a hospitalist, so I'm very good at consulting when I don't know. <laughs> I've consulted <laughs> lots and lots of um, other children's hospitals and health systems to say, what do you do? I will say there's some of us that won't have the option of personally making that choice. So for example, in California, they have really restrictive state laws that are being interpreted in ways that sometimes adolescents aren't even offered the chance. So there's some things that swaddle that personal decision as a physician, mm -hmm. depending where you practice. But um, from my own personal clinical experience and having been in my own role and then also talking with everyone else, I think that there's the first part of it, which is the adolescent themselves. There are some patients that we care for that if you have an intellectual or cognitive disability, if they can't read and write at an appropriate level for literacy, that's something you look at. These are just nuts and bolts pieces, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the patient, but then that's also their family and their caregivers to have that kind of basic ability first. I think we look at the complexity of what you're planning to manage. In a children's hospital or in a really uh, specialized area with a complex disease, those patients are highly motivated a lot of times and engaged in their care. That is going to be a good match. Another good match might be someone who lives on their mobile, right? Like there's a digital divide that not everyone has high-speed Wi-Fi and a desktop at home, but we know that smartphones are prevalent, right? So I look at all of those things, the individual's readiness and sort of a, a gut check of what we think might happen in this electronic communication. 
and this is called out in the policy as well, that understanding what you have to offer in your personal setting, in your personal EMR is really empowering because in my personal setting, we have um, secure messaging through the portal that we use for our EMR. We have a certain amount of data that's available to the patient. We have the ability to send attachments into and out of secure messaging. And we have the ability also to offer this standard set of pre-appointment forms. And those are kind of three buckets of information. So when I'm getting ready to talk to a 15-year-old, I have this knowledge in my head so that I can talk to them about like, okay, so when you go back and see your regular doctor, this one test isn't back yet. And it'll show up in your portal. And do you have your portal? Do you share that access with your mom or dad? Um, I think for an adolescent, those are the things that I consider. It really is incredibly personal, which is why it's hard to write, not just laws and policy, but it's kind of hard to write rules into the EMR that fit every Mm -hmm. context. So probably overlying all of that is, is the first do no harm, right? So when we move down this path of electronic communication, do I have confidence in the tools and in the individual so that we're not going to circumvent this. I don't want anyone secure messaging their doctor on a Friday night saying, I'm having severe chest pain and I can't breathe. What do you think I should do? Like that's, <laughs> that's what you want to avoid, right? Yes. Um, so doing things like set, assessing that, making your own judgment, and then even having things in place like here, remember, this is what we agreed about. This is what we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of first do no harm is a big part of what I personally do in that consideration. So it sounds to me like a lot of the times it might be unclear for a patient how they should approach the communication framework. Mm -hmm. What kind of standards should be in place to help guide the clinicians and the patients to know how to use these tools? It's a great question. What's in the literature tends to be, we didn't make it worse. When you look at (laughs) what you should do. And when I say worse, I mean like worse for your clinical staff. Like everyone's worry is, oh my goodness, we're going to do electronic communication. And suddenly they're going to have to call in and be like, oh my goodness, my lab test is off. Or what did this mean? And I think that um, there's some basic guidelines, but it's very custom and specialized to your particular micro Cosm. Now, I probably just gave everyone hypertension by saying specialized and custom, but (laughs) I would look at those general rules as the things that you want to be kind of consistent for everyone. So for a patient, it should be really clear what they're going to see in their electronic communication. I'm ordering a, a test. You will see this test in and give them the appropriate window of time, right? Whatever the test is, whatever the settings are in your personal EMR, that should be like a standard thing to give patients so their expectations are consistent. Some health systems that are doing this really well, like it's part of their, part of your routine, like welcome to our clinic. Here's where the bathroom is and here's how we communicate with you. Those things should be, you know, pretty consistent. And then then it gets hardwired. Expectation about when you see results Mm -hmm. um, and get responses is incredibly important. The timing of when you get a response in your inbox, in addition to setting that expectation at the beginning, have something on the portal that says, this is checked every 24 hours at 8 a.m. or something like that so that there's some clarity and transparency about how that's being used. Obviously, that's more relevant to inpatient care, right? In the outpatient setting, there wouldn't be a standing order to test something every so often. That could be. Yeah, yeah. So um, it could be for inpatient. And if you're using like a bedside electronic communication device, completely relevant that you're having these results come back. But it's relevant on the outpatient side too. I think one of the big fears 
and the, the first do no harm, if I go back to that idea, mm -hmm. is that a patient would somehow get a result electronically without the appropriate context to understand it. I'll, I'll give an example. If you order a genetic test, this is a common one, right? Genetic tests aren't straightforward like a hemoglobin or a glucose. They need context for interpretation. And most importantly, if you're going to try to make a medical decision about it. And a lot of groups have decided not to share those results because it's not appropriate for one way or asynchronous delivery of those results. That's still a really new area. It's not well. It's not like there's one great paper where we studied the, the stress of a patient and you show them a pathology result versus a genetic result versus a urine culture and say, mm -hmm. what's your relative level of stress? We don't have that data. What we have is professional guidelines and experience to say, there's a reason we do a family conference when we do a new diagnosis or something like that. The AAP policy, that's one of the most granular descriptions because it says, do not make diagnoses electronically without appropriate expectations. So, and trying to not use electronic communication in place of something that really needs two-directional discussion. Mm -hmm. It seems like really, it's not very technically complex, right? But it, it seems like something important to say, right? There was a story in the media, the lay media, where we had a robot doctor doing telemedicine. This was a terrible story. This is what we want to avoid. And the robot doctor telemedicine rolled up to the patient's bed and gave them some devastating news, right? That's not appropriate for electronic communication. There's Right now, I would say there's still very much an acknowledgement and a desire to say not everything is suited for this. And uh, I think with time, we'll probably start to see more and more examination of that to really, mm -hmm. to really delineate with data versus this kind of more subjective feeling of what is appropriate and what isn't. Now, we only have a few minutes left. What do you see as, as the next steps for patient-physician communication beyond the tools that we have right now? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And since I know we're talking to our future leaders and our clinical informatics fellows, I think the next step is, there's two pieces. Culturally, I think we are seeing very much the value of these electronic communications being defined not by just the clinical team, but by the patient themselves. So I think we're going to see more and more of that, of the patient saying, this is what's valuable to me, and hopefully letting that inform where we prioritize our development. That's the one, the first thing. And I think the second one is sort of related to what we said earlier. I think we're going to see things that we used to think needed to happen in a conversation, in a visit, move into this area. And I think we're going to have to be really diligent and thoughtful and intentional about what we do in that space. So for example, and if you think about the way things like a weight check or a come back in and get your blood pressure checked and things like that. We're going to be seeing people push on that and say, this is still a valuable piece of information. Can we do it in a way that, that removes the need to travel for the patient or take a half day off work to do it or is more efficient for the clinical teams? And I think we'll see electronic communication. I'm using that as a very broad term, but we're going to see that people start to test and question that to help define what's appropriate and what's not. And you've seen that in other industries too, what we start with and what we move to. Healthcare is always going to be different than finance or shopping or anything else we do on mobile devices. And as physicians and informatics leaders, I think that's where we, we exercise our voice. We, we push, we question, we disrupt, but we do it in a way that keeps the, our patients at the center of it, keeps them safe, 
and also upholds our, our trust with them to do things in a way that is effective and, and appropriately valued. So. Excellent answers. Thank you, Emily <laughs> Weber, for you. your time today. Uh, it's always fabulous to talk with you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the time and uh, look forward to future episodes of your podcast. Cool. So guys, let's talk a little bit about how you guys have used communication. So Dr. Weber is a pediatrician. What are your specialties? I am a pediatrician and a hospitalist. So similar to Dr. Weber. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, so pediatric subspecialist, Eric. I'm a pediatric outpatient doctor. So her discussion about adolescence and communicating with our patients hits home for us, huh? Yeah, especially for me, because I often deal with patients who are whose parents are using the portal to follow up on things. And it's always a little bit tricky as far as what actually reaches the patient. You know, how much, we can't open the portal up very wide or else the parents might see things that we don't want them to see or that the the adolescent doesn't want them to see. So it's a little bit trickier that way. We have the portal open for everybody, but only a small portion of our patients actually chooses to use it. So I think that's pretty common across the board. Uh, it varies a little bit according to where you are, but I've seen numbers that show about 30%, maybe 40% uh, activity is pretty respectable. And, and I'm sure that has to do with uh, the sort of overall adoption strategies that, that different institutions are taking. I know we are at, at Lucille Packard focusing a lot on just getting people to sign up and then once they sign up, then it's easier to start to introduce different features and share more nuanced information through the portal. But most people need some sort of introduction to, to get familiar with the fact that portals even exist. I think it's only recently that portals have really become mainstream. Even. And it seems like if you look backwards to like chat rooms and things like that, it took about 10 or maybe even 15 years for it to get from widespread presence to really a cultural norm. Yeah, and, and I think it, it is gonna be a moving target in a lot of ways. I know, like right now we're talking a lot about MyChart Access. Right behind MyChart Access, this is for the, the PEDS hospitalist world, there's a MyChart bedside, which is, uh, provides some similar information available on the portal to patients while they are in the hospital. So. Patients either if they have their own iPad or sometimes hospital beds will have an iPad bolted to the wall next to it that patients can use MyChart Bedside to review some of their own information. And that, that in itself is sort of a, a whole new paradigm built on top of MyChart because example that Dr. Weber gave about the telemedicine robot who gave bad news in an inappropriate manner. Uh, I mean, that kind of thing is, is definitely possible with my chart bedside also. So we have this sort of cat and mouse game where on one hand, the Epic and the, the vendors and other vendors are sort of pushing these new technologies. And in a lot of ways, the hospital systems and their informatics teams are adopting them and implementing them as they should. But then there's this sort of like catch up work that has to happen in order to get these new technologies in line with principles and, and, uh, other sort of functionalities that, that we, we expect. Uh, and it is, it is not straightforward. You know, I think you made a, a, a very important point. So Dr. Weber also commented about 
it's important that the physician understands what we have to offer. And I think that's a big role that the informaticians can play, right? Because a lot of times hospitals will adopt new technologies, but the practicing physicians may not know what is actually available for the patient. I do Mm -hmm. wonder, though, if patients have access to the labs and things that you will discuss on rounds, will it make rounds longer? Sometimes in the inpatient world, rounds can already take quite a bit of time, and patients will have the time to process and ask more questions, which we surely want them to do but it may also affect our workflows in ways we might not expect. But then you have to, you have to consider what happens on the flip side, right? A lot of times uh, labs like that get around to the families eventually, um, or their effects get around to them later, and then there's more questions later. Uh, so are you, are you really saving yourself a, a hassle or saving yourself time by not discussing that stuff earlier in the day when you're just gonna have to come back around and, re- and discuss it more in depth? in the afternoon. And there's also the concept of medical ambiguity that I think is is a difficult conversation to have and particularly a difficult one to have when you're in a hurry on rounds when when there's a lot going on. I I think we are all comfortable with a certain level of ambiguity. And I, I think that is something that it may take a while for families to get used to. I know she mentioned having a patient relative stress level right, between receiving information online versus having a face-to-face discussion about it. We actually had the same debate in one of my biomedical informatics courses, and quite a few, and this is, you know, mostly graduate student level courses, so people in their 20s, and most of them actually prefer to receive even bad news electronically first so that they could process the information and maybe have some sort of response like crying or getting upset and by themselves as opposed to with strangers. Interesting. It it has some similarities to this concept of a flipped classroom. I don't know if any of your guys' classes take this model, but the idea being that digitally or on the internet, there's enough information that participants in a class can learn about a topic up to a reasonably sophisticated depth. And then you spend a class time discussing the nuances or maybe the expertise of the professor or other people's experience in the classroom. But the idea is that you don't, you don't spend the, the human's time together on discussing the content that is available always online. And this seems sort of similar in the sense that if you can read about your even genetic test results before you show up in clinic, then you have great questions for when you show up in clinic because you've read what already what's out there and, and, in, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a better and potentially more challenging and rewarding uh, use of the physician's time also because their, their conversations are going to be much more substantive. I will say that as one of only two physicians in the classroom, I was really surprised that that's how the majority felt. I thought most people would want to have that face-to-face personal discussion. I think me personally, that's what I'd want. But uh, the majority you know, was in the other bucket. I think in my, in my position, I recently dealt with the hospitalization of my grandfather and uh, information was not available for anything that was going on with him. And of course, I had a million questions when we actually were able to get a hold of a physician and talk to them. Uh, but I feel like if I had been able to see that, uh, I probably would have been able to calm my family down, give them some idea of what I thought was going on, suggest some questions that they could ask. Uh, they actually called me into the into the situation because they were they were extremely anxious as a result of not having any information. 
So while there is a while there is a balance, you know, you you might make some people more anxious by giving them more information. I don't think that the study has been yet conducted, but the preponderance is, would reduce anxiety. It's also interesting to think about this sort of evolving spectrum of methods by which patients can get access to their information. You think of sort of the most basic one uh, as either calling the office and talking to a nurse or an MD, or all of our hospitals have health information management services where you can, you can request a copy of your records formally in paper, and then they print them off or they burn things on CDs and get and mail them to you. Uh, and then so we have sort of this middle level of sophistication with after visit summaries. Typically that is a way for providers to give a summary of medications, a potential problem list. And now we're sort of stepping into this middle future zone where we have portals, we have MyChart Bedside, open notes is something that a lot of hospitals are signing up for that, that make doctors' clinical notes available to patients. And then we have sort of a, the future, future ones of these sort of fire resources where you can, you can download things automatically onto Apple Health or uh, whatever other app. And it's, it's just so interesting how Every single one of those is potentially an option for a patient to get access to their information. And every single one of those has its own nuances and requires different interactions between the patient doctor and the health system and support staff. And part of me thinks our job is to find new tools, but on a operational informatics side, our job is to also sort of streamline this process and tell providers like, here is what we think the best way for you to get your information to your patient is. As opposed to saying, here are eight options, pick whichever one you want. Like we should say, here is the best option that we've put a ton of time and effort into streamlining, like use this. Because Jen, you were asking earlier about difficulty with implementation and uh, provider education around these sort of things. And I think part of it is there's just, there's just so many options in these areas that we, we haven't come up with an optimal solution yet. Uh, that kind of came up in, in the interview, actually. Uh, I asked uh, Emily Weber about, you know, we've talked about implementing standards for communicating, but th something that came out is that there really isn't a tool to use to assess how much information someone's ready to get or what way is the best way to give it to them. Um, and I think as informaticists, an additional responsibility we have is to evaluate the tools that are out there rigorously. I feel like we're only just beginning to evaluate the effect of releasing physician notes immediately, releasing lab results immediately, uh, providing them in all these different formats. We're just kind of scratching the surface. And not only that, but I think that Dr. Weber is exactly correct when she said, putting the power in the hands of the patients and their doctor. You know, every patient is going to be different. I trained in West Virginia. There are certain counties in West Virginia, there is no internet available. And so thinking about how that type of patient who even may want information on my chart but isn't able to get it still exists. So these are some of the rigorous, you know, discussions that we need to have. Yeah, there's, uh, there's even bigger areas out west that don't have any internet. Uh, Areas in West Virginia are generally smaller, but if you look at like the cell phone coverage maps, there's huge areas out west that just have no coverage. Uh, people who are out there have to use the satellite, uh, have to use satellite data to get access to stuff. 
I mean, obviously, as an informatician, we need to know the area that we practice. But if you're practicing in one of those areas, you may choose to take a different approach on what you would recommend as the best method of communication. Smartphone bump. Do you guys remember that? Do you guys remember the smartphone bump app? What was it called? I don't even remember, but you'd bump your smartphone against someone else's smartphone and the data would, would go over? Oh, yeah. You know, I never used that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I probably had that. Until 2010, by the way. <laughs> What do you guys think about what level of responsibility do informaticians have to personalize these types of information sharing services by specialty? Because like, like Dr. Weber had the example of the, I believe it was an oncology patient or who got a, a diagnosis so through this technology. Um, and we've talked to, we've actually gotten a lot of feedback from our oncology department that sharing information prematurely is a really difficult thing for their specialty to deal with. And so we sort of share, we share less for them. But on the other hand, there are dozens of major subspecialties in a tertiary healthcare setting, and there's no way this stuff can be personalized for everybody. So how, how do you, how do we sort of uh, reconcile those two of, is it just sort of listen to who has the biggest, who has the loudest voice or the biggest concern or, or do we pick a handful of subspecialists that get special configurations? What, what, what do you think our level of our tolerance for individuality among subspecialists should be? You know, I'm a subspecialist in pediatrics and a lot of times I do tests that will lead to life altering diagnoses inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune hepatitis, things that will be with the patient Only forever. Yeah, yeah, celiac disease. And I want to take a step back and say, I think that the bedside physician also has to play a part in this. Because if I'm counseling a patient and saying, these are the things that I'm doing, the reason I'm doing this test, and you've already had some preliminary discussion, then that puts the patient in the frame of mind to accept or to be ready to see a result that they may not want to see. Right. So if you don't have that discussion, if you just order a bunch of tests up front without having a very pointed discussion about what the results may mean, then that's going to be a very different scenario than having that discussion up front. You know, Obviously, I, using technology, we can't account for that. But just when it comes to the practice of medicine, I think that that should be best practice, regardless of how we think is best to communicate. But I also think, Keith, you're getting into that area of information blocking. In my institution, we kind of have some buckets. So we expect that there should be a discussion within a certain time frame of the result being done. And so those re results may not be released until it was manually released by the physician after discussion has been had or after a preset time frame has passed. And so um, I think that that's the approach that some institutions may take. And, and that is what, what we do as well, this sort of time delay um, based on specialty. And that seems like a reasonable solution because from a configuration standpoint, it's it's not that difficult to change the number of days that have to pass. Seems like a reasonable compromise. I was part of a, a well, I listened in on a discussion, a uh, fairly heated discussion about uh, what, what was called devastating results. 
And there were comments made by geneticists and oncologists about things that should never, 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 never be shared with patients. And then there were some geneticists and oncologists who were saying that you absolutely should share them immediately as soon as the result returns. And the last comment I felt was the most poignant. He said, why don't we ask the patient what they want? People who know, have seen the effects of hunting disease say they don't want to know the results of the test. Uh, and they know that ahead of time. For, for those types of situations, there isn't even a question of whether or not we're going to release it in 24 or 48 hours or 21 days. The patient doesn't ever want to see the result. Perhaps there is a way to bring the patient a little bit more into the conversation. But Eric, I think you made an interesting point. I don't know in my chart or in any of the patient portals if we can actually ask the patient if they want to receive the results. Do you know if that exists? Uh, as far as I know, there is no option in any EHR for letting a patient decide when they want to receive the result. Other Who do we than... need to call about this? <laughs> <laughs> so one of, the, one of the projects I'm working on now is releasing problem lists within uh, my chart. And that's obviously different than test results, but gets at the same crux of the issue. At least with problem lists, there is the capability of a physician, when they enter a problem into the system, of checking a box that says share with patient or not share with patient. But and that's, that's the physician the, deciding, right? Yeah. Not yeah. the patient uh, deciding they want to know if they have something or not. Yeah. I mean, and hopefully if, if the patient is adamant about not finding out certain things, that that would be made very clear to the care team. But then there's, there's also the question of if a patient doesn't want to find out, like, just don't go onto the app. Like, don't, don't, don't look at the, at the results section. I mean, to, at, at, some, at some point, we can't ex be expected to save patients from themselves if they're going to go looking for information that they don't want to find. But it's, it's tricky. Yeah, and then there's the question of, uh, it, it, it kind of comes back to what does the patient want, right? Because, like, they might want to hear from their doctor right away. They might want their phone to buzz if, they, if their doctor puts in a little note that says, hey, I just noticed this thing. But they might not want to get a little buzz if there's lab results or, you know, x-ray results or, uh, or other things like that popping up on the portal. And this was one of the questions we did not get to ask Dr. Weber was we wanted to ask her about if there were specific types of messages that should go directly to a physician versus to a pool of people. So if you were to release a certain type of result and the patient were to have questions about it or whatever, should there be policies or standards in place on when communication should go directly to the physician or to a buffer of people? And that is a use case that sometimes people wave their hands and say the words machine learning and natural language processing and all these <laughs> solutions of the future. Because um, you could sort of envision a world where you had some sort of tool that could interpret the severity level of an in-basket message and then route it to the appropriate group to respond to, you know, whether it's a patient with a question about an abnormal lab result or wanting to reschedule their appointment. And so those are the sort of potential solutions that some people are working towards, but it's hard because then, and this, this gets back to what Dr. Weber's point about federal policy and reimbursement and, and, and sort of what sort of institutional drivers there are for, for physician behavior. Because if you have a great tool that routes the important messages to physicians' inboxes, 
then physicians are going to start getting a lot more inbox messages, even if all of them are the important ones. Like there, there's going to be an expectation for more time spent on an inbox, which physicians don't get reimbursed for. And so, again, unintended consequences of new tools. There's a good reason for, for some provider pushback because then that just means more time that they spend uh, in their inbox not taking care of patients. If a physician were, were, were compensated for spending time in their inbox, then the situation you might imagine where someone asks a question of their physician and the physician responds quickly and they don't go to the ER as a result could result in you know, large overall savings for the system. But yeah, that, the compensation model is just not lined up with that. Unless, unless you're Kaiser. <laughs> I don't think even Kaiser uh, compensates their physicians for inbox time, do they? No, I, I agree. I agree. But at least they're the ones who would save the money if the patient stayed out of the ER. That's true. That is true. <laughs> Speaking of communication, did you guys see the, um, that Alexa, that you can actually ask Alexa for medical advice now? No. There's a news article that Alexa is going to be accessing the British, is connected with the British health system. So you can do things like ask Alexa how do I treat a migraine? And she will access the database and give you a result. I'm not surprised, uh, but I'm, people already use Dr. Google all the time. Now, I don't know if she's yeah, really but... compressing it down into, if, if Alexa's compressing it down into a, a little mug of advice like, the, the internet says you should take a caffeine pill and lay down, or, <laughs> or, or if it's just like, check out this website. Um, which is, you know, especially delightful if you're having a migraine to look at a, you know, backlit screen. Yeah, you know, when I was first thinking about communication with our patients, especially the adolescents, I think they mostly prefer to communicate on social media. Now, I don't necessarily think we'll be communicating electronic health record information on the social media, but definitely this idea of digital health is up and coming. I know that Epic and other people are looking at making their EHR look a little bit more like social media, but... You're right. I don't, I, I don't see protected health information flying out on Twitter anytime soon. It's also scary to think about when PHI becomes movable enough that it can be bounced around between apps, whether it's, it's, it's Twitter or Apple Health or sort of other like very mobile modular tools, how the burden of maintaining the security of that information shifts from the health system to the patient. So we are all very comfortable with HIPAA regulations that limit who can access and, and what type of information can be shared and, and, and things are very, very carefully monitored. But as soon as some chunk of information, uh, like some fire resource of that patient's EHR goes onto a patient's phone, whether that's in Twitter or Apple Health, that information is no longer covered under HIPAA because it's the exact same as a patient requesting a copy of their medications and then they get that medication list faxed and the patient is, is able to do whatever they want with it, which is great if people were better at maintaining their own privacy on the internet, but we know that people just like are willing to share anything. As soon as the, the PHI is mobile enough to be bounced around, I, I suspect we are gonna see it be made public or, or be accessed by whichever gaming app you fancy 
people are going to be sharing their health information left and right. No, I'd be curious to see if you could take a computer vision uh, model and look over Facebook or Instagram and see how many my chart screenshots they can find. I'd just be curious to see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I haven't seen any yet. <laughs> Epic probably launches internet torpedoes at, at, at people who, who post images of my chart. All right, guys. Well, we usually end the episode with a pro tip, which I think we forgot to ask Emily for one. Um, Eric. Let's see. A, a, a pro tip. Um, I guess make sure you don't hand a discharge paper from an outpatient office to a teenager's parents because they will log into the portal instead of the teenage patient. That's a lot true. of times there's passwords or other information that you let you log into the, the patient portal. And we've had, we've had situations where nurses have handed the discharge paper to the parents and the parents go home and they immediately log into the, to the patient's portal. We'll see what's going, on, what's going on with the patient and what the results of the STD tests were. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh I've, got an, I've got another one. Patients complained about communication. Uh, and what they were complaining about was the nurses would keep pulling out their smartphones in the room. And they're like, why is, the, why, is, why is the nurse pulling out their Twitter or Facebook, you know, and, and doing Facebook in the room instead of talking to me? Really what they were doing was they were logging on to their, their uh, EHR in order to send back and forth with the doctor. So they actually had to release a communication to all the patients to say, we use our devices for business purposes. <laughs> so having, having that kind of thing in, uh, in the admission spiel for a hospital can, can potentially be helpful to prevent that. It's interesting you say that because I think some hospitals that I've heard about will actually have work smartphones specific to the people who are working that have the same color case so that the family will know, oh, you're in the red color case, you're doing patient-specific business because that's your work phone. But if your case has, you know, Hello Kitty or whatever you personally like to keep on your case, then that's your private use phone. I think for me in this era of people getting more messages, it's going to go back to this idea of preventing personal burnout. You know, I'm a huge advocate of not being interrupted. And whenever you get more and more messages and you get pinged every time a new message comes in, whether it's in your email or your in-basket, I think it's going to be important to take dedicated time to look at that, you know, once every few hours, once in the morning and in the evening, as opposed to looking at it constantly. So my, my pro tip is based on a conversation that I had with another informaticist recently about the value of a complaint and how we should have a lecture at the beginning of informatics fellowship about how important and beautiful complaints are. Because in a lot of ways, that is what our profession deals in. Like we go on rounds and people complain to us about what's going on and what's wrong. Um, and I think thinking about a complaint, not as a uh, sort of obnoxious thing to be ignored, but as a sort of thing to be cherished and dissected and understood and collected uh, and encouraged uh, is an important concept for informatics. I mean, you make, yeah. a huge, you make a really valid point there because in this profession, we have this 
beautiful ability to really affect how people care for patients at a different level, right? Because we can make workflows more efficient, take away some of those things that people complain about. And so for any people who are interested in informatics, I think that's one of the benefits of our field. Complaints are opportunities. You know what? Thanks for meeting. This was a great conversation. I think communication is so important. Our patients will be thankful that there are people like you and Dr. Weber who are spending time to diligently study the best way to communicate with them. Um, and so I think this is really valuable work that we're doing, that they're, you guys are doing. We are all doing. And you. We are all yeah. Doing. <laughs> all right, guys. Until next time. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Jen. Bye. Bye.